From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The human condition, it turns out, did not change with the pandemic. It turns out that the human condition didn't change with World War II. It didn't change when Trump got elected. It didn't change with the Crusades. It didn't change when we discovered the heliocentric versus geocentric theories of the world. Right? All of the stuff that we narrate about human history is internal to the lived reality of finite beings. That is what philosophy throws us into on purpose. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we are delighted to welcome back to the show Dr. Aaron Simmons. Longtime listeners will recall that Professor Simmons was a guest in one of our early seasons of the show, and we are just so happy to be catching back up with him again today. He is widely published in philosophy of religion, political philosophy, and topics related to existentialism and phenomenology. Professor Simmons is the author or editor of numerous books. He has over 200 total publications. He was the president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society and president of the South Carolina Society for Philosophy and member of the executive board of the Society for Continental Philosophy and Theology, and he's held other offices at the Society for Christian Philosophers and the American Academy of Religion. He's professor of philosophy at Furman University, and he is currently coming out with his first popular book on philosophy, Camping with Kierkegaard. Professor Aaron Simmons, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Oh, David Dalt, it is a pleasure to be with you. And the one thing you did not mention is that you and I are longtime friends, which is easily the most important thing about any of my resume. That's very kind of you, and I am grateful for that friendship through these almost two decades now of knowing one another. So there's so much that I want to catch up with you about, but from the last time that we spoke, the conversation was on Pentecostalism and postmodernism, and that should give listeners who are unfamiliar with your work a little bit about where you're coming from. But I just wonder if you would uh, sort of get us into what you've been working on lately. I want to hear, before we do anything else— what is this project with camping and Kierkegaard? Tell us how you got into it and what it's trying to do. Oh, thanks so much again for having me back. So, yeah, I at the beginning of COVID, two things happened, right, right simultaneously in my life. One was the world cracked. Uh, our vulnerability was exposed. Our inability to depend on traditional things like social trust, institutions of deliberative democracy, all of this sort of fractured in front of our eyes, along with the collective global trauma of the pandemic. And at the same time, I, in my personal life, promoted to full professor at Furman University, which for listeners who may not know, basically means I don't ever have to worry about going up for promotion again. And why this matters and why these are connected is it gave me an opportunity, the 
seemingly never ending months of sitting at home to reflect on what it is that I wanted to do with the next stage of my career. And in really cool ways, there were no careerist intuitions that emerged. What emerged was my son doing virtual school, watching my friends anchored in their own homes, absolutely mind-numbingly grateful to all of the Amazon drivers and the Instacart deliverers who were facilitating life for so many of us. And Watching Italians, you know, hang out of their windows and bang pots and pans and people in car lines honking, celebrating physicians. And at the same time, watching the breakdown of public information and the rise of conspiracy theories. And so it was in this weird milieu that I discovered about myself that really my interest had shifted, not away from the philosophical ideas I had spent the last 20 years investigating, but the audience with whom I wanted to talk about these ideas. And so I began to think, well, shoot, if philosophy does not find a way to connect to our everyday lives, if it's not a way of life that is invitational for all lives and all livelihoods, then it's not clear to me that it's anything other than the useless major that most parents want their kids to stay away from so they can go get practical degrees, right? And I think that those parents are wrong. I think philosophy is a way of thinking well so that we can live well collectively. And that, it, it shifted everything for me. And so in that moment, I started asking myself, well, what is it that I turn to philosophy for? What is it that it gives me? What is it I hope my son learns from having a philosopher as a father? What is it that I need to learn from watching the Amazon drivers and the essential workers out there doing the things that my risk level wasn't able to navigate? And I realized the whole thing is reducible to one phrase, which is we've got to find ways to be faithful in life. And this idea doesn't have to be understood as a religious conception, though it might. I am Pentecostal Christian, so I'm entirely fine if this faithfulness gets cashed out that way. But I mean it as an existential idea. Faithfulness, for me, is a way of differentiating a mode of living from a success-minded and success-logic culture where everything is about checking the boxes, external reputation, gaining more power, solidifying your status. It's basically influencer culture just made more complicated. <laughs> That's the success logic, right? And the problem with this is it cultivates on purpose assholery as a virtue. It, it makes of us the kinds of people who think that our own entitlement is just what it looks like to be in the real world and the rough and tumble of the business. And as I'm watching the world break, of course, this was not new for people who were historically marginalized and people who were historically occluded from those workings of power. And it was like, man, we've allowed this logic to override critical thinking, social trust, social collective flourishing. And so for me, faithfulness as a different way forward emerged. Now, 
What does any of that have to do with Kierkegaard or camping? <laughs> you, you might ask. Well, let me take a quick second and reintroduce you, and then we can dive into exactly that. Folks, if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted to be speaking today with an old friend of the show and a longtime friend of mine, J. Aaron Simmons. He's professor of philosophy at Furman University. He's author of the forthcoming book, Camping with Kierkegaard, and numerous other books on philosophy. He's been on the show before. We're delighted to have him back. And so now let's really begin to dig into this because you've teed it up for us. What does the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard have to do with all of these breakdowns in society and loving our Amazon drivers that you were just talking about? Yeah. So in the months that followed this sort of awareness and this shift in my own thinking and this commitment to faithfulness instead of success as the narrative by which we find meaning in life, I begin asking myself, well, what would I do if normal was no longer idolized, right? What if, because we all kept saying, you know, hashtag return to normal and just get back to normal and when's normal returning? And I kept thinking, well, shoot, normal kind of sucks at a lot of levels, right? Global poverty and hunger and climate change. And again, conspiracy theories and the breakdown of our, I mean, my goodness, the church's absolutely just struck out when it came to hanging curveballs of neighbor love opportunities during the pandemic. And so in those moments, I went to the mountains, I went fishing. And this, of course, was not something to escape the world. It was because I didn't want to be around other people. I was trying to love my neighbor by staying away from them. And in that space, I fished, I camped, I got into mountain biking, and also reconnected to why I loved philosophy which is philosophy is not about sounding intelligent at cocktail parties or eating better cheese at the wine and cheese parties. Philosophy is not about being abstract. Philosophy is about appreciating the nuance required to live well. And where is it for me that I can think about this nuance as a practical liturgical mode? That's in the mountains. And so Kierkegaard defines faith, this Danish philosopher defines faith in a way that resituates it not as like a weak knowledge, right? If only I had good evidence, I could convert my faith to knowing. But notice that's a success modeled notion of knowing, of logic, right? What we've got to do is try to make our faith knowable so it can be publicly shared, it can be scientifically replicated. But this is just reinforcing that whole success mind of checking boxes and making it sellable. But what if faith isn't that? What if faith, drawing from Kierkegaard, and this is my definition, but it's Kierkegaard summarized, what if faith is just risk with direction? Risk with direction now becomes, again, not necessarily a religious concept, but a way of understanding we are vulnerable, we are relational. And so we've got to have some sort of trajectory to the narrative of our lives, and we may screw it up. (laughs) This might have been the wrong set of choices. The risk does not go away because of the vulnerability, and the direction is required because of the relationships with others. And so the book emerged as this attempt to invite everyone, whatever their background, whatever their academic level, whatever their philosophical training, to think with me about living lives of purpose grounded in this faithfulness logic 
and a commitment to risk with direction playing out in whatever ways bring that joy to them. My wife does not like the mountains. She wants the beaches and she wants flip-flops. And all. for me, I can't see why anybody just wants to be sandy and sweaty. Like that just sounds horrible. So we can disagree. For somebody else, it might be a great espresso. I hate coffee. For me, it might look like a good cup of tea. It's not about y'all do what I do to find joy. It's about how is it we can start inviting ourselves and others to let joy replace the normal workaholicism success logic mindset that has basically created a culture of assholes. And that space is one that I'm hopeful maybe inviting people into philosophy can address. Right. So that's what that's where it emerged, how it played out. It is currently being submitted to presses. My agent is trying to get it placed somewhere. Anybody who is interested in this, they can, of course, follow me at my website, jarensimmons.com, because I'm announcing things there as it gets moving forward, as it gets uh, hopefully published soon. And as we're moving towards our first break, I really like the turn that you made at the end there. This move towards a kind of philosophical recovery of everydayness. Now, this is my language for it, not yours, but I really liked the turn towards extraordinary variety that you took at the end there. It's not about everybody in gym class jumping at the same time, wearing the same uniform. It's about the beach people and the mountain people and the city people like me finding a way to reconnect with our everydayness. Now, when I say it this way, have I got it or would you say it in a different way? I love that. And in fact, it brings to mind a passage in Kierkegaard where he says that the night of faith, which again, for listeners, that doesn't have to be a religious commitment, right? This could be atheistic commitments to living on purpose in light of believing that there is nothing after life. Be on purpose with that, right? But Kierkegaard says the night of faith always finds the sublime in the pedestrian, which more or less is let's recover the everyday. And the one critique I get when I present these ideas is an entirely fair critique, which is people will say, that sounds lovely and wonderful, full professor who's tenured already, who's got everything you know in place such that you could use Instacart and didn't have to deliver other people's groceries, that you've got the mountain bike that lets you go do this, you've got the job that's flexible. I completely bite that bullet and say, yes, that critique is the right critique, But it's not a critique of the ideas. It's a critique of a global system that has thought it was okay to allow some people not to flourish in these ways. So the upshot of this whole encouragement to rethink our culture as a faithfulness target rather than a success one should motivate a real work for social justice. Right. If others are not able to rethink normal in these ways, we've still got more work to do challenging the legacy and hegemony of the way normal has privileged some at the expense of others. So I just think we should still call forth these lives of joy and beauty and fulfillment and then maybe try to model them so far as possible rather than thinking only critique. Right. Richard Rorty uh, says at one point that critique is great. Alternatives are better. 
And so what I'm trying to do is draw on existential philosophy, putting it into practice, living this out, and in inviting people to say, hey, what does that look like for the city dweller, for the single person, for the married couple, for the people with six kids, the people who, in fact, don't want kids but have an awesome cockapoo, whatever it ends up being, how is it that you're able to have the agency over your own finitude? And so the question that the book asks that all of this is meant to be a kind of suggestion back. The question is, what is worthy of your finitude? And unless we invite everyone to ask that question and then really have agency and really have the ability and the social navigation to be able to respond, I think that our society will continue to only elevate some at the cost of others. And I think that's always going to be a failure of what it is philosophy invites us to rethink. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with J. Aaron Simmons. He's professor of philosophy at Furman University. He's the author of numerous books, and he's been on our show before. Today, we're talking about many of his projects, but especially a book that he's been working on recently called Camping with Kierkegaard. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with J. Aaron Simmons. He is professor of philosophy at Furman University. He's the author of numerous books, and he's been a guest on our show before. Today, in addition to his many projects, we're talking specifically about a project he's been working on lately a popular book of philosophy called Camping with Kierkegaard. So I want to continue to set the stage for our listeners. We have gone through a period of several years where all of the old normals broke down for us. The expectation that we would have kind of a functional health system and that we would have a good responsive government and even some of the mechanisms of democracy have been shaken and rattled to their core lately. Before the break, you were talking about the thinking of Soren Kierkegaard the Danish philosopher. And one of the things that Kierkegaard invites us to do is to risk with direction, to be vulnerable with our finitude, to use that wonderful phrase that you brought in. I think if I'm hearing you correctly, we kind of went through a period where the whole of the world basically said to us, come on, guys, you've got nothing to lose at this point. Is that the right jumping off point? Like we we have seen lately that all of our old stories are breaking down for us. And so now this creates the invitation, not just for the ivory tower philosophers, but for everybody to try something new. Have I got it right? Or would you say it in a different way? 
Yeah, I like that a lot. The philosopher Martin Heidegger, a complicated and problematic thinker in his own right, was correct when he said that it's when things break, we really see their utility. So the other day I was hammering with my son. My dad and I were putting together these benches and my son was hammering in these nails and the nails kept bending as he was trying to hammer them into the wood. And of course, it's only in that minute that we sort of became really aware of the utility function of a nail and these nails sucked at it, right? These nails were not good nails. So in many ways, it's very easy when things are just, you know, chugging along. The inertia of the narrative of social progress is very compelling. And then, though, these moments where things run into an obstacle, right, they're acted upon by an outside force. In this case, it was this global pandemic. You start seeing all of the seams begin to show. It's as if the tapestry that kind of you know, held it all together you can see through and it's threadbare in spots that you may have deceived yourself were really strong. And so it's in those moments that I'm not trying to offer radical suggestions for public policy. There are smart people doing that. I am not an epidemiologist or an immunologist. There are smart people handling those things. I have very little to say to how to rethink our healthcare system in relationship to the histories of our legal realities that have favored white folks over people of color. Like these injustices, very smart people are working on and thinking about and interrogating. As a philosopher, though, we tend to think, well, philosophers are useless, irrelevant, not practical. And yet, when this all began to happen, it was as if everything I had ever read and written and thought through suddenly became more urgent rather than less, <laughs> right? And I like, tell my students all the time, philosophy doesn't prepare you for this job. It prepares you to be someone who's invested in living on purpose, whatever job you have. Philosophy is not something that invites you to say, oh, here's this therapeutic response to this or that trauma in existence. There are, again, smart therapists doing that work. Philosophy says, make sure you aren't deceived by the idea that life is always going to be great. But here's the thing. When it's not okay, maybe you still are. Right. That, that idea of this existential awareness from Stoic philosophy through Shakespeare on up to Simone de Beauvoir and bell hooks, this large swath of thinkers and writers and poets and producers, they've invited us to say, hey, it's not just about having the fancy car in the garage, though that's fine if that's part of what drives you, go get it. But it is a matter of saying, is it well with your soul? <laughs> Where soul doesn't have to be understood as a religious idea, but more that kind of Southern idea of, you good? <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm good, right? This idea of being good even when it's not. That's the thing philosophy invites us to realize because the human condition, it turns out, did not change with the pandemic. It turns out that the human condition didn't change with World War II. It didn't change when Trump got elected. It didn't change with the Crusades. It didn't change when we discovered the heliocentric versus geocentric theories of the world. Right? 
All of the stuff that we narrate about human history is internal to the lived reality of finite beings. That is what philosophy throws us into on purpose. And Kierkegaard is just one thinker who I find especially helpful for trying to navigate those really big questions. Not so we get specific answers. The jumping jacks aren't going to be all uniform. But so that we can maybe be okay with the answers that we have right now. Right. It's not about getting the exclamation points to the great questions of history. Maybe it's about being OK with a comma just for a minute. And in order to do that, we've got to be willing to put question marks where everybody else assumes there are already periods. And that's what philosophy does, is it rethinks in order to invite us to live. And I think that's something really lacking right now in our society. Maybe Kierkegaard existentialism and for my money, a little bit of mountain biking and trout fishing maybe can help. Now, I want to circle back to something you said midway through your answer there. And you said, listen, I'm not trying to create a policy position. There are smarter people than me that are working on that. But I'm really struck by what you're suggesting here, because what I'm hearing you saying is, listen, start where you are and ask yourself, is the direction that I see this going, if I keep doing tomorrow what I did today, is this drawing me closer to a life of joy? And if it's not, I'm hearing you say, start where you are and figure out how to recover, reclaim, reconnect to that joy. When I heard you say that, I heard in the back of my mind two things. I heard Walter Brueggemann saying, Taking a day of Sabbath is a form of resistance. And I heard Audre Lorde saying, when you let your body rest, that is a form of revolution. And so I want to ask you about, even though you're saying this is not a policy program, when an individual actually starts to reflect this way, it can have consequences beyond the individual, and it can begin to create something, dare I say, that is revolutionary or radical. When I say that to you, how does that sound? And do you want to push back against any of that? How's that landing with you? Yeah, no, my, my Pentecostal blood, man, just wants to say, preach it, brother. No, I'm all in. It's interesting. When you start allowing yourself to interrogate normal, so I'll just give you a couple examples of how that looks on really mundane levels, right? So during COVID, we were not able to be in person for the classes I was teaching, which I was entirely fine with. I was not one of the voices saying, we've got to get back. This is not good. I was saying, oh, my goodness, if we can't figure out how to do classes virtually facilitated by these magic boxes that we type on all day long, we suck at living. We've got the ability. Let's be good at it. And so I started having these online classes did online office hours. And what was really amazing was, yes, there's always something lost when you're not in person. You can't hug the friend you've not seen in a long time. So I'm not suggesting that it's the same, but it turns out that those moments allowed me to realize office hours? Hmm. Let's put a question mark after office hours? <laughs> Why? <laughs> hmm. So if I give my students my cell phone, now I'm not saying everybody has to do this. So that's why I say it's not a policy rep, but it is a praxis that changed for me. I'm going to give them all my cell number and say, you know what? If you need me, 
I'm around. I'm available. But I'm probably going to be on a trout river or maybe I'll be at home reading a book or writing another one that I'm trying to put out into the world. Maybe I'm out throwing the baseball with my son. Like the ability to recognize the availability is the thing that mattered, not the sitting in an office just in case they happen to want to stop by. That was absolutely revolutionary to the way that I then related to how to be a professor. And it's mundane. It's trivial. And yet it created enormous amounts of time to be with people I love and then still, it turns out, be more available to my students. Now the idea when they say, hey, are you available today? I can say, heck yeah. I can't come to the campus today. I've got these other things going on. Tell you what, you tell me anytime after 4 p.m. I'm available, let's Zoom. And they're cool with it because I'm able to be faster in response and more connected with them, even though it looks different. Same thing when it comes to how to make sense of our physicality of work, which I know you do a lot on material spirituality and like the material Bible and things. Well, what, let's put not the question mark office hours question mark. Let's just do office question mark hours period <laughs> so again these magic boxes we call computers well heck man i'd rather hike and be on top of some mountain in north carolina i can get signal up there and do my work on top of a mountain while watching birds and squirrels and i'm getting my books written i'm getting my papers graded i'm still available to all my students they can have virtual office hours while i'm sitting there so I recognize that's not possible for lots of people given the specifics of their job, but there's something possible, right? And that's where, yes, rest can be Sabbath. I want to say rest, not only take a nap, which we should, but rest in the sense of why is it we don't encourage and invite and invest people with the agency, the power, the creativity to say, what is possible given what's necessary? And maybe some of what you think's necessary isn't, right? Those questions, I think, are world-changing questions. And it really does, in my mind, get anchored in things like when I look at civil rights and feminism and queer theory and these movements for justice around the world, they often are. Hey, we want to go there, some position that we see as infinite in the future. But where do we got to be tomorrow so that there is even on that horizon, right? And so the way I put this, again, a Kierkegaardian idea, is that you always are the person you are becoming. And so if you're not okay with who you are, you definitely are not going to be okay with who you're becoming. And we tend to excuse this, right? We say, oh, when I grow up or when, if only I get through this job, if only I can get to that break, I just got to get that promotion. I've got to just get this thing finished. Then I'll, but that's a deadly logic. If only, then I'll, is the logic that maintains the inertia of sucking, right? It, it's what keeps us unable to be able to move further, to think differently. And so rethinking where we are in light of who is it that I hope to have been? 
That question is one that gets us away from the success narrative and starts saying, well, shoot, yeah, I wanted a PhD. I got one. I was blessed. I, I wanted a tenure track job. It worked out for me. <laughs> I wanted to get married. I married my wife, married 22 years. Like there's a lot of success goals that have been achieved. Those are fine. But when you ask me what drives me, the problem was if the PhD drove me, well, then I should have stepped in front of a bus after the defense. Or I just wanted to get married. Well, let's get married. And then I might as well like have an affair and leave her the next day because the marriage is what mattered. And Kierkegaard talks all about this when he says that the danger of just having to get more in the next is that we become people who have to always rotate our crops <laughs> in order to think we are good farmers. And I'm more interested now in thinking, what does it mean to be a faithful father or a faithful professor? or a faithful citizen, or a faithful Christian, or whatever the things are that define me, a faithful friend, right? A faithful neighbor. Those are not going to be things that I'm done with on a Tuesday at 2 p.m. Like George Costanza on Seinfeld, and he tells the joke, people laugh, you throw your hands up, thank you and good night, and you walk out. No, it's I'm only faithfully a good father if I'm every day faithful to that direction and risking messing it up. And most days I do. We are both dads. Most days, <laughs> if success was the target, boy, I blew it. But if faithfulness is, tomorrow I will continue to do what I was committed to today. And that, I think, really makes a difference. So I'm hearing two things in this response that I want to dig deeper into. One is that line from Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Mother Night, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be very careful what we pretend to be. I hear in that an echo of always, you always are the person that you are becoming. But what I'm also hearing you saying is that at any given moment, we have a kind of gut check. We can check in and say, does this feel like the kind of person that I want to be right now? And so from my Catholic perspective, we would call that conscience. From a Jesuit perspective, we would call that, are you feeling consolation or desolation? If we were going to go Walt Disney, you know, Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, any way that you want to sort of talk about it, it is always immediately there. And what I'm hearing you saying is we need to be very cautious and conscious of the moment that we are living in right now. Now, when I say it that way, am I hearing it right? Or is there some other piece that I'm missing? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. One of the ways that I tend to approach philosophy is as a way of life, not just a set of doctrines. And think about it. That's probably a good way to approach almost everything we do. Right. So here's this set of doctrines about being a husband. Like, ah, but being a spouse, a partner with my wife. No, this is a way of life. And every day I'm going to try my best to navigate it and rethink it and dig a little deeper and tweak some stuff around the edges. The same with professor. I mean, every year I have to answer these questions. What are some areas in your teaching that you could improve upon? Well, again, like it's the worst professor who's like, I'm freaking good at this. Y'all step off, right? No, the good professors are the ones who say, you know what? I continue to struggle with X. And even though I've been wrestling with X for 20 years, here's two other ways that I want to try this year, maybe to even get a little better at that. So it's recognizing that excellence 
is also something that is not about achievement, keys in the garage, house on the hill. Excellence is this constancy of moving ever more toward what we think matters. And this is where we might bring Aristotle and Kierkegaard together and say, well, so what should we do with our finitude? What's worthy of our finitude? Another way to ask that is, what are the habits that you hope to have created in the future? The only way to get those habits habitual is to bake them intentional decisions today. And again, I always want to stress, this is never disconnected from the task of social justice, right? Because in order to do this, think about how often our society strips away the ability to ask these questions, right? We do, you know, Miranda Fricker talks about the epistemic injustice that is done by silencing certain groups because we deem their bodies not relevant, not trustworthy, right? The same thing happens, though, when we set the stage of the discourse and we engage in what she calls hermeneutical injustice, where we strip away the categories from people who need those categories to narrate their own frustration well enough to think differently about it. So there's work to do as a social justice-oriented project, but I'm trying to lay the kind of existential stakes of why those things matter. They matter because we're trying to invite everyone to this type of invested life, this type of purposive action. And so, yeah, I'm entirely down with the idea of saying, hey, if you don't like the way things are, I realize saying change it many cases, not an option. But then ask yourself, I can't change that. But what could I change? What could I do? What do I do sometimes that I wish I did more often? For me, that was trout fishing. That was mountain biking. So I do it more often. And it turns out when I do it more often, the days where it's like, you know what, today is a grading day. It's raining. I can't get to the mountain. I'm stuck inside. I'm at the office. Those days become way easier to navigate because I'm not having to look 50 weeks ahead to find the week of vacation. The point of vacation, the rest that it provides, I've maybe found a way to integrate more seamlessly into this life that everyone needs to view as necessary and stable and unyielding. Turns out one of the scariest things is when we realize the stuff that we took for granted maybe wasn't obvious after all. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with J. Aaron Simmons. He's professor of philosophy at Furman University, author of numerous publications. The one that he is working on right now is a book on popular philosophy called Camping with Kierkegaard. We will be back in just a moment to talk with him some more. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture, 
and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're delighted to welcome back to the show Professor J. Aaron Simmons. He's Professor of Philosophy at Furman University, author of numerous publications. Today, we've been talking about a project he's been working on for a popular audience in philosophy called Camping with Kierkegaard, but we're also talking about so much more. And to get back into this, I really want to think about something that we sort of began to touch on uh, right before the break, and that is you've been talking about being more fully present in the moment and interrogating the normal. I love that phrase. But thinking about the question, is what I'm doing right now is that going to lead to the habits that I hope to have in the future? And I'm paraphrasing you, but I think I've got the substance of it. What strikes me about that is you're, you're inviting listeners to really do something subtle here. You're inviting them both to become more present in this moment, but also to become more imaginative about the person that they're becoming, to have both a more crystalline sense of the now and a more crystalline sense of the possibilities of the then. And so you're inviting someone to shuttle back and forth between present and future. And I'm wondering, is it ever a fear for someone engaging in this? How do they not get lost? How do they not, how do they not lose their way trying to figure out between the now and the then how to really mark that path? Well, before I, I give you my thoughts on this, I want to just mark the fantastic metal album track that you just mentioned, The Crystalline Possibilities of the Then. So if there are any progressive black metal bands out there, I'm sure that Dr. Dalt would be fine to uh, give you that phrase. So you're exactly right. So one of the things that philosophy represents to most people is not just useless, not just, hey, welcome to your bait shop job. It's actually scary because it forces us never to be as stable as we think we already are. People don't like question marks. We like periods. Most of the way that we have the kind of group polarization occurring in our social discourse is because people are really uncomfortable, not just with the questions being asked by those with whom they disagree, but the questions that they now have to ask of themselves if they take those with whom they disagree seriously as a conversation partner. So, People don't like philosophy because it gives them grief. It causes them stress. And I completely get this. So, yeah, there is a disorientation that can occur when you're thinking a lot about where you are, where you hope to go. And there's also a kind of luxury that is even made possible in that questioning, right? Most people navigating what's required of them in this moment is what makes the next moment even livable. So I also want to, again, constantly say, I'm articulating and calling for a sort of social ideality, not something that I think right now everybody can just hop into this. They can hop into something. And so it's trying to figure out, so where is the little linchpin that's possible where you are, even if it's so minute, no one else can see it, right? Now, that said, the way that I tend to invite people not to get disoriented and overwhelmed and overrun with the sort of infinite possibilities of what can I do is the same sort of stuff I try to invite my students to do when they come to me and think, or they ask the question, right? 
What should I major in? What grad school should I accept? Where do I go next? Which internship? Because what they're doing is getting overwhelmed by the fact of possibles. There are more than one futures that they now see themselves moving into, and they are terrified by the idea of having to close down some of them. And so they make it a really big deal. <laughs> what am I going to major in? And my response is always is simply to say, look, what classes are blowing your hair back right now? Let's take more of those. <laughs> and it'll turn out you'll get a major, right? Stop worrying about the major. Do more of what you really love. And sometimes you ain't going to love that day or that particular class. But the love of, the, again, this trajectory, the risk with direction, I'm trying to get them to talk to me about the directionality of their present desire, their present enjoyment. And when they think about this, it's like, oh, well, I really love the math class. I, mean, I was like, well, hey, why don't we take another math class next semester? And we'll also take three others that are required to get some things filled and you'll be fine. And then at the end of that semester, you still liking that math? And they're like, yeah, it's freaking cool. They go, why don't we take two more now? So easing into our lives, it turns out, is always the way we do it. But we narrate so many moments as these life-changing epoch moments. I remember when I got married, thinking everything changes. I was like, no, it doesn't. I've, I've been with Vanessa for years. All that changes is she doesn't go home at night, right? So the idea was I only got married because it had already become habituated as my love. The same is true when it comes to doing philosophy in everyday life. So I started a YouTube channel right at the beginning of COVID called Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves. And I'd love folks to check it out. I do weekly videos there trying to do two things. One, give them a little bit of content about the history of philosophy and big philosophical ideas made accessible, right? Because I think sometimes people just wish they had that range of options and words and vocabulary to make sense of where they are. The reason I do this is because I think hermeneutic injustice is very common. So I'm going to try to get people bigger frames of reference to make sense of where they are and who they are and how they are. But then the other reason I'm doing it is trying to show that philosophy is already going on everywhere, right? I did one recently where I was out mountain biking and popped a tire. And so I filmed myself with my bike on my shoulders, walking out to the car and talked about the fact that, hey, we get flat tires on the trails of life. But these aren't moments of despair. They're moments of, huh, when did I ever think my tires were going to last forever? <laughs> this is a really helpful stoic moment. Like I can, huh, maybe I need to rethink my expectations relative to the activities that I invest in. Right. So next time I don't not go mountain biking, but maybe I bring a spare inner tube with me. Right. That ability to see philosophy is going on in all these spaces is my attempt to invite people like I invite my students to see the big task as actually really small, already normal, already common, already stuff they're doing. Now, let's just be a little bit more reflective about it. And then do it on purpose rather than on accident.
Well, now I'm going to invite you to imagine a possible future. So I want you to look ahead to when your new book, Camping with Kierkegaard, has been published and it's out in the hands of readers. Do you hope that this will serve as an introduction to Kierkegaard to invite readers to go deeper into Kierkegaard's writings, or is it going to stand alone and when the reader finishes it, you think, okay, now you've got enough Kierkegaard, now start to apply what you've learned in the book. Which would be your preferred future for readers of this book that's coming out? Yeah. So I actually uh, got asked a version of this question from my agent when I was pitching him the book. And he's like, well, talk to me about the audience, right? I'm going to give a typical philosophy answer. I want both. And I want both because I think that I want both types of reader. So there will no doubt be people who read this book and get real excited about these ideas from Kierkegaard, Aristotle, Sartre, <laughs> Beauvoir. And my goodness, I draw pretty widely. So I've got discussions of a lot of contemporary heavy metal and hip hop. There's a whole chapter about the Cheers theme song going where everybody knows your name. It's all about relationality. <laughs> there's a whole chapter about Nietzsche, but it's not talking about Nietzsche's ideas. It's trying to perform Nietzsche's model of writing aphoristically. And so I say, wait, what does it look like to listen to ourselves in little short spurts? How do we develop our own voice in this way? So it's a book that's not trying to introduce people to Kierkegaard. It's trying to bring them into conversation with this set of conversation partners I've been talking with and walking with for 25 years. And I think that they're cool people to talk with. But I'm interested in those readers who read it and say, wow, I really want to read more Kierkegaard. I really want to read more Sartre. I'd love to see what Cornell West is up to. Doing that work is something I hope this book invites. But I every bit as much want to invite the reader who reads it just because they love camping. And they're like, oh, shoot, like, who's this Kierkegaard guy? At some level, I don't even care that they pay attention to the philosopher's names. I care more about maybe they read the chapter about learning ethics on the trail, which is all about showing humility, hospitality, and gratitude while on mountain bikes. And how does this work while we're coming down the trail and you've got a hiker in front of you? And how do you navigate this space? I'm entirely fine if the person reads it, forgets all the names, but then maybe is, you know, a little bit less of a jerk in real life. Like, I'm, I'm cool. With that. that is a win for me. So I really don't see one outcome. This is not meant to be a, like, seductive way to get them to do more philosophy, though I hope it does that. It's really meant to be a very straightforward, explicit invitation for them to live more philosophically in whatever way that looks in their specific circumstance and relative to whatever joy activities they do. So, yeah, both. So as we've been talking and as you've been describing this project, and listeners, I haven't read one page of Camping with Kierkegaard yet, but as it's been described, two resonances have been coming up for me again and again. One is Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is a book about thinking about the world in an analytic and romantic way, but also it's about a cross-country trip on a motorcycle. That's resonance number one. The other is Thoreau's Walden. 
where Henry Thoreau basically says, stop trying to live the rat race and be productive. It's better if you can just find your moment by a pond. Now, as I present these two resonances to you, do either of them feel like a good fit or would you take one and reject the other? Kind of how do you sit with me saying, it sounds like you're talking about Persig and Thoreau here. Yeah, well, so Thoreau shows up a bunch in the book. The thing I get from Thoreau most often is Thoreau has this idea in an essay called Walking, where this is paraphrasing pretty dramatically, but he basically says, if you want to go for a walk, you've got to risk getting lost. And that idea is effectively what this whole book is about, is that risk, the invitation to walk. And so I say in the book, and I say at the end of every newsletter I send out so on my website, I send out monthly newsletters so people want to subscribe. But I always end with, come, let's walk together and talk along the way. And it turns out the reason I use that phrase is it's got some Thoreau resonances and it's a philosophical invitation to dialogue. But it's also the thing my wife and I said to each other when we got married. That was in our wedding vows. So the idea of thinking this as mode of living, not just data, <laughs> is meant to be performative. Thoreau gets me that. As for Zen and Motorcycle Maintenance, I don't actually engage that book in my book, but I do talk about, actually in the preface to it, I say something like, there are several books, several thinkers who are so present that I don't ever cite them. And that could be one of them. So the other books that are of this same sort buddy of mine named Aaron James has a great book called Surfing with Sartre. That's all about how surfers model the right mode of rethinking economics in a capitalistic society. It's a freaking brilliant book. He also wrote the book Assholes, where when I use that term, I'm meaning his theory very technically. But also uh, John Cage wrote a really cool book called Hiking with Nietzsche, which is all about his sort of personal experience and coming to figure out who he was while retracing the steps of Nietzsche's hikes over in the Alps. There's a great book by Belden Lane called Backpacking with the Saints, which is a little bit more academic, but it's also about how his experiences as a solo backpacker connect to the study of these lives of the saints and their sort of rejection of what really counts and what really matters, and then replacing it with a different value theory. So there's a lot of these kinds of things what I hope is that this book and the YouTube channel, which are really of a piece, right? It's all this sort of new trajectory and lots of different outlets. My hope is that these aren't seen as like, oh, I've read that before. But as a reminder that huh, the really important stuff about living it stays really important. <laughs> and so Kierkegaard says at one point that we have to learn what is essential about life for ourselves. And this reminds me of Whitman, who says that we will not now see through the eyes of the specters of the dead, but we will take and see for ourselves. Or Augustine, who is taking and reading, he's experiencing and putting it into practice. So my book's meant to stand hopefully next to these others in ways that are constant reminders to different people in different ways. Surfers are probably going to resonate more with James's book. Those who are serious hikers, they're going to like Keg's book. Motorcycle people, definitely go check out Does It in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or a new one that just came out by Matthew Crawford called Why We Drive. And it's all about motorcycling. So there's different kind of affinity groups that are probably going to latch on to different ones. The camping narrative 
is my way of saying the spaces where I find my liturgical enacted mode of philosophizing happens in the mountains. And so that's what I draw on as my set of experiential stories, the, the tales that I tell, but it's not meant to be exclusive to that. So I would say rather than trying to go beyond those others, it's trying to do the same type of thing and maybe hit an audience that may have missed some of those. I think that there's room relative to the important stuff to keep reminding people that it's important. I realize that you have in your career, you've written a lot of technical philosophy, both papers for journals, but also standalone books and monographs. You've edited large amounts of books on technical philosophy. Earlier in the conversation, you said, talking about advising a student, if they come and they say, I really liked this math class, you say, well, let's try another math class. And then if they like that math class again, maybe try two and to keep checking in with yourself, almost doing soundings along the way. All throughout this conversation, I have gotten the sense, Professor Simmons, that you have loved writing this book of popular philosophy on Kierkegaard. So is it safe to say that after this book comes out, you maybe are going to dip your toes in the water of the popularization of philosophy again, and you're going to continue to move in that direction and explore? And if so, do you have any ideas about what might be next? Yeah, thanks for asking that, because it is exciting whenever you write a book to talk about it and think about it. But of course, once it's written, then you're thinking about the next thing that you're currently writing, right? And so it's always, you're going back and talking about what you did do rather than what you're doing. <laughs> so I appreciate the question. I still do a lot of technical philosophy for two reasons. One, because I think it's important when Michael, I'm not Michael Jordan, but when anyone who is great at a thing, let's take Michael Jordan, when he retired from basketball, I'm pretty sure he was still shooting hoops, <laughs> right? So there's a reason to stay good at a thing that you love, that you have cultivated an excellence in. And I take very seriously, I need other experts in my field to push back on me to keep me as sharp as I need to be so that the books I might write for a popular audience are actually worthwhile. So I don't see these as disconnected. So I am still doing a bunch of technical stuff. I have a book coming out on Kierkegaardian phenomenology that no one will read except Kierkegaardians. And I have a book coming out on philosophy of liturgy, which again is very hardcore technical work in philosophy of religion. But the two books that I'm working on now that I'm really excited about, in addition to the YouTube channel, which again, has got a lot of my energies, is I'm actually translating the YouTube videos, which I've got over 200 now that I've made over the last few years. I'm translating that into a book simply tentatively called Unless a Piano Falls on Our Heads, Philosophy for Five Minutes Left. And the idea is... How do we take all these, you know, couple hundred videos I've done, turn them into little five to seven minute reads and make them speak to where we are and why it matters? And then I've got another book that I'm really excited about very early stages, but I'm trying to think about how to tap mountain bikers as a source of philosophical wisdom because my goodness, these are folks who navigate risk in very dramatic ways. <laughs> every rock and every tree is trying to kill them. And I've gotten so seriously into mountain biking that I now take these risks, rode 20 miles yesterday with a friend of mine. And it's so cool. And, and this is the thought, and I haven't figured out exactly what this book will be, but it's this idea. 
it will always be the case that the mountain will break us, right? If we try to throw ourselves against the rock, we aren't going to win. The mountain will always win. But here's what's so badass. We can learn to ride mountains. Ah, that idea, that phrase, something there is a book that I want to write. My hunch is that it will end up being a collection, not that I'll publish this way, but a bunch of interviews with bike mechanics, bike designers, professional mountain bikers, et cetera, and then pull all of that as my data set and then try to write this book reflecting that weird tension. The mountain's gonna win, but we get to ride mountains and draw on their collective wisdom to think about that. So those are things I'm working on. Again, YouTube channel every week, newsletter on my website every month, really trying to expand out a philosophy as an invitation to talk and walk together. Well, J. Aaron Simmons, every single time throughout the 20 plus years that I've known you, that I've had a chance to sit down with you, I've always come away having learned a ton and having enjoyed every second of it. And this conversation has been no different. I cannot wait for Camping with Kierkegaard to come out. I'm looking forward to these other projects that are in the middle distance for you. And when they start to come to fruition, I hope that you'll come back and talk with us again. Thank you so much for just sitting down today on behalf of both me and my listeners, I just want to say how grateful I am that you took the time to do it. Oh, David, it is my absolute pleasure. And for any listener who wants to hop in with me and think and walk with me, hike with me, please check out jarensimmons.com. I've got the newsletter available there. I've also got all kinds of notifications about different podcasts, interviews, et cetera, that I'm working on. And also hop over to YouTube and check out philosophy for where we find ourselves, get subscribed. These really are invitations to try to not get people listening to my voice, but inviting them to enter a community with me where we all walk, talk, hike, ride, think together. And so it's an honor to be with you today, my friend. We've been speaking today with Professor J. Aaron Simmons. He's Professor of Philosophy at Furman University. He is the author of numerous articles and full-length books. Today we've been talking about a project he's been working on called Camping with Kierkegaard, but as you've just heard, he also has so much more to offer. Please do check him out at his website, jaronsimmons.com, and if you go to our website, we will have these other links in the show notes. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.